This is the daily lectionary comments for June the 30th. We're going to look at uh, the transitional period in Joshua chapter 5. The people are now on the west side of the Jordan River and things are changing. We're going to look at Acts chapter 10. And uh, Peter is led to the Roman uh, soldier Cornelius. All right, Joshua chapter 5. The people have now crossed the Jordan River, and so for the first time, they are on the west side of the Jordan in the land of Canaan, where God had promised he would take them. And this chapter is going to deal with a number of changes that the Lord is going to institute here. The um, Basically, they're moving from the so order of things for the previous 40 years, which is basically Israel as a uh, uh, wandering, uh, you know, nomadic kind of, of people, to now Israel is in the land that God had promised them. This is their land where they will live with their Lord. So some changes are going to be made. We're going to deal with circumcision first. This is a bit of a mystery. We learn here uh, that that the this generation, this second generation, has not been circumcised. And we, and we learned that because Joshua was ordered to reinstitute circumcision. The thing is, we never learned that it was uninstituted. This had been the practice, and, and we would assume from, you know, until we read this passage, that the Israelites had been practicing circumcision on the males. Uh, Eight-day-old males would be circumcised. That this has been taking place throughout the time in the, in the wilderness. It is clear that it has not. Nowhere are we told that it was stopped, but it, it evidently was stopped. And so we're going to have to do a little guessing as to why. Um, the fact that this passage seems to be at pains to connect the need for circumcision with the fact that the last generation was under the judgment of God and not permitted to enter into the promised land seems to connect the, the, the lack of circumcision to that judgment. It doesn't say that, but we don't have any other way to look at it. So if that's the case, then basically from the time that the Israelites rebelled and didn't go into the promised land the first time, uh, you know, two years into the wilderness wanderings until now, there had been no circumcision. One thing seems to be clear, though, is that God is wanting to make a specific break between the first generation that came out of Egypt and the second generation that is going into uh, the land of Canaan. And therefore, the first generation would die in the wilderness and not practice, would not circumcise the next generation. And the next generation then would all be circumcised en masse and then uh, as they enter into the promised land. So that's, that's the first thing. Circumcision is now reinstituted. Uh, and it says specifically uh, that today I am rolling away the reproach of Egypt. Now, what is that talking about? The reproach of Egypt, the fact that Egyptians are likely laughing at us. Now think about this. Um, God rescued his people from slavery with an uplifted hand and, and did some mighty things to the Egyptians. But from the Egyptian point of view, uh, these people were supposed to go into this new promised land, but it's been 40 years and they're still not in that land. So the reproach of Egypt would seem to be this. Either... It's the Egyptians noting that this mighty God that rescued these people has not been able to get his people into the promise, into the land that he promised to give them. Either the Egyptians are noting this and actually uh, holding Israel in some derision, or 
the Israelites are just imagining that because, in fact, we did humiliate ourselves before the Egyptians and all the world because our Lord did try to bring us into the promised land and we screwed it up. And so for that reason, 40 years, we've had to been living with the fact that our God has not completed what he set out to do yet. It's our fault, but who, you know, for whatever reason, the Egyptians either really or were imagined to be laughing at the Israelites, but God is saying, well, that's no more because now you are going into the promised land. So if they were laughing, they're not laughing anymore. And you need not worry about that. So that's, uh, uh, that's the circumcision issue, the reproach of Egypt. Another thing to consider here, a change, is that they celebrate Passover. They had not been celebrating Passover during the time in the wilderness, evidently because the people were not circumcised and you had to be circumcised in order to participate in the Passover celebration. So we have to assume that they weren't celebrating Passover either. They come into the promised land, circumcision is reinstituted, and the first thing they do is celebrate Passover uh, exactly 40 years to the day from when they actually came out of Egypt in the first place. Also, another important change is that the manna will discontinue. They had been uh, a nomadic people and God had taken care of them through the manna and water from the rocks, but it makes it clear now that from now on, they will live off the land of Canaan. And the manna stopped on that day and never continued again, which was a very good thing because that means that we are no longer wandering in the wilderness, we are now home. So that is another uh, wonderful thing that we have going on here in this passage. So that, that, that's a sort of a transition from a nomadic people to now we're entering into the land. Then we are introduced to this command of the Lord's army. Um, the focus changes from now we're on the other side of the Jordan River in the land of Canaan to, all right, now here's the work that's set up before us. Jericho is the first city that we're going to be attacking. And, uh, and we are introduced to the commander of the Lord's army, uh, which is a wonderful, vivid picture of the fact that God is with his people and God is fighting uh, this battle. One might wonder whether this is actually a pre-incarnate um, appearance of our Lord Jesus. Uh, he will be fighting for them. Uh, at any rate, uh, Joshua realizes that this is a divine figure. Uh, he falls to his face. He worships. Uh, he is commanded to do by this uh, figure the same thing that Moses was commanded to do when he came into the presence of the burning bush, that is, take off his sandals because the ground upon which you are standing is holy ground. And so we are now set up for the next act. And the next act is uh, the attack on Jericho, which is described briefly in the first part of chapter 6. And then after that, we're going to go into actually how the attack unfolded and the capture of Jericho. But that is for tomorrow. Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 1, um, this whole passage is setting us up for a larger thing that is about to happen. It's a very big thing, actually, that's going to take all of chapter 10 and all of chapter 11 just to get through the initial phase of it, what the church should make of Cornelius and his family's conversion and baptism. That will be a big deal, but we're not going to get into all of that just yet. We're going to begin instead with noting that the Holy Spirit is clearly at work manipulating all of this. Cornelius gets a vision and is told to reach out to Peter. Peter gets a vision to prepare him to be reached out to 
by Cornelius. Now let's take a look at that vision. Peter, it says, was on this housetop to pray. Housetops in that day in that part of the world were flat and they were often used uh, as places of prayer. So, I mean, you would have access to them. This isn't as unusual as it may have seemed. That would have been a, a normal thing for, for somebody to do. Cornelius is a God-fearer. He is a Gentile. He is not a Jew, but he fears the Lord. He prays. It says he gives alms. Uh, he, he, he lives a righteous life because he fears the Lord, but he is, in fact, not a Jew, presumably not circumcised, doesn't follow the dietary code or anything like that. Um, okay, now, Peter gets a vision. The vision is of a whole bunch of animals. He sees a whole bunch of animals in front of him, and then the command, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's response is, I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm not going to eat. That would be wrong. Presumably in all these animals, we're going to have certain animals that were not authorized for Jews to eat. Let's imagine that among those animals was a pig. Jews can't eat pork. They can't have ham. That was considered unclean, and they absolutely could not eat it. And so presumably, either actually... Uh, a pig or some other unclean animal was among all these animals. And Peter said, I won't do it. And that's where we get the theological message that's important in, in our text today. And that's this message uh, from verse 15. It says, uh, that vision, by the way, kill and eat happens three times. It says, what God has made clean, do not call common. And just about that moment, some people show up from Cornelius's house at Peter's gate. So now Peter is being summoned or called to go visit a Gentile at the Gentile's home. And God has carefully prepared him not to think uh, or, or not to be pondering about kosher food or not. The point here is not that Christians can eat pork if they want to. That's true, but that's not really the point of this passage. The point of this passage is it's not animals and unclean animals we're talking about. It's unclean people. Do not consider Gentiles unclean, because if you do, there's going to be an everlasting division in the church between those who are Jews and those who are not. And we're going to see that over the next number of chapters, that question is going to be dealt with. Do we have two churches, a Jewish one and a Gentile one? Do we have only a Jewish church or do we have only one church consisting of Jews and Gentiles? And that's what's coming up next.